listening to Red Flag Radio. We want to acknowledge that we record this show on Indigenous land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to the podcast that is the Revolutionary Socialist Podcast produced um, by activists and um, including activists and socialists in our discussions. We're based in Melbourne, Australia, and welcome to our international listeners. I know because I'm the one who looks at the stats at the back end of this podcast that we have some international listeners too, and welcome to all of you, and thanks for listening, and to all of our um, listeners here in Australia. This is episode number 76 of our podcast, um, and there's some pretty great episodes in our back catalogue. If you haven't checked them out, check them out, um, subscribe, and also we really enjoy reading your reviews and feedback so you can leave reviews on a bunch of the different platforms like iTunes and stuff and on Podbeam. Um, If you want to leave a review and tell us what you think, you can even review individual episodes, which is great. So yeah, appreciate your feedback. Appreciate your time listening to us today. Let's get into the discussion. We have a first time guest on the podcast, Shirley Killen, who is a socialist activist also in Melbourne. Uh, and at Melbourne University and is a contributor to Red Flag newspaper and came to my attention as I always read all of the articles from Red Flag, most of the articles from Red Flag, and Shirley wrote one on this topic that we're going to be talking about, how Australia's richest have profited in the pandemic. And both me and Liam just said that we're feeling in a ranty mood so Mm -hmm. brace yourselves in this is going to (laughs) be ranting about the fucking rich and how Mm -hmm. disgusting they are um so welcome Shirley to do some of that with us thanks for having me all right let's get into it this pandemic has been going on for a fucking long time Mm -hmm. we've been told ever since it started the one of the big messages has been we're all in this together you know it's hard for everyone the virus can affect everyone. We all want to stop the virus. There's this kind of unified national interest, particularly in Australia. It's a very well-trodden path. We're all in this together. There's a national cabinet. We're working together, blah, blah, blah. You've pointed out in your article, the 250 richest people in Australia have increased their wealth by $93 billion. $93 billion during one year of pandemic while we're all fucking just worrying about dying from this virus, they've been getting rich by $93 billion, 25% increase um, of their wealth. How, how does this happen, Shirley? Talk to us about this crazy figure here. Yeah, well, I think this data really shows how ridiculous it is, this idea that we're all in this together, like you said, because yeah, in total, the wealth of the 250 richest Australians now stands at $470 billion, which is up from $380 billion pre-pandemic, which is already enormous. But um, that 25% increase is just an average across the list. So some of these people increase their fortunes by much more than that. 
like Gina Reinhart, who more than doubled her wealth from $16 billion to $36 billion across the pandemic. And others in the mining industry did similarly well, like Clive Palmer and Andrew Forrest, and also bosses in the tech and transport and real estate industries. But um, I think that talking in terms of billions of dollars can be like a bit difficult because it's actually incredibly difficult to conceive of just how much money that is. I think that one statistic that the Saturday paper used to help explain it is pretty useful, which is that the wealth that Gina Reinhart accrued in 2020 alone could have paid the salaries of 250,000 nurses. Wow. And that's, that's more than half the number of practicing nurses in the whole of Australia. So I think that gives more of a sense of just how huge these figures are in real terms. And as to how this massive increase in wealth happened, well, I think there's a few parts to it. Part of it is, is luck. Like Gina Reinhart was lucky enough to inherit her company from her dad who was lucky enough to own a piece of land that happened to be rich in iron ore. Although luck is maybe maybe not the right word because land, that land was at some point in the chain of inheritance seized through the violent dispossession of Indigenous people. But um, Gina's also been lucky that iron ore has been a particularly lucrative commodity over the past year or so. And another part of it, part of this wealth, I think has come from governments injecting money into their economies over the pandemic in the hopes of staying afloat during lockdowns and all the pandemic-related chaos. So although countries like Australia were forced to increase support for workers, they also made sure to balance that out with loads of handouts to businesses and the stock market. But I think that probably the most important thing to say is that these billionaires are not smarter or more hardworking than the rest of us. In fact, like I'd say that the average Australian worker works much harder than any one of the people on that richest 250 lists. And that's ultimately where this wealth comes from. It comes from the labour of the millions and millions of people who work in these companies and in the mines and in the factories, the warehouses and the supermarkets and so on. Like It comes from the people who risk their lives every day going to work in a pandemic, the people who've died in their millions internationally just to line the pockets of the capitalist class. So it comes from the workers ultimately, I would say, the people in society who do all the work but reap none of the rewards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the classic Jeff um, Bezos quote who is obviously the boss of Amazon when um, he was doing that press conference about mm. his rocket ship to the moon and he said, I want to thank all of the workers at Amazon and all of the customers for paying for all of this. Mm. It's like literally the workers at Amazon generated the profit that paid for that fuckwit to get in a rocket and try to fly into space or whatever the fuck they were doing. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's where the wealth actually comes from and dug out of the ground in Gina Reinhart's case. And, Liam, I was thinking of that classic Lang Hancock, Gina Reinhart's dad interview, I think it's in the Mm -hmm. mid-1980s, where he said, where they're talking about indigenous people on the land, and he and he says, you know, um, if we need to po- if we needed to poison the water to get yeah. rid of them, yeah. um, that would be totally fine. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, not many generations ago, in fact, that Gina Reinhardt's family happily would just 
commit acts of genocide if they needed to to become rich. So yeah, well, I mean the you know the the explosions of the you know the dynamiting of the of the gorge over in WA uh, last year uh, by Rio Tinto, I think it was. Um, that is an act of genocide. You know, it's not not literally killing people, but uh, the destruction of culture and the breaking of tradition is one of the ingredients of genocide. So yeah, it's not only not only you know only one generation removed, but also it's it's part of the ongoing drive of Australian capitalism to wipe out uh, to wipe out remnants of Aboriginal culture. Except for those moments, you know, those cynical moments where they try to commodify it as a tourist attraction, which is a whole other sick thing they're doing too, of course. Yeah. And what about internationally, Shirley? Uh, my understanding is that it's pretty much the same in terms of the wealth in accumulating amongst the rich around the world during a pandemic that's already killed um, millions of people, more people than World War One, I, I believe we're now at that point. And people are still getting rich internationally. Yeah. Yeah, I think the Jeff Bezos example is pretty relevant. It It's definitely a general trend across the whole world. The figures uh, vary a bit depending on what sort of metrics people use, but just going by Forbes magazine's annual billionaires list, there was an increase of $5.5 trillion in the wealth of the world's billionaires from March 2020 to July 2021. And that's a growth from $8 trillion to $13.5 trillion. And it's the most dramatic surge ever recorded by Forbes in like a single period. So in the US in particular, there was a 62% increase in billionaire wealth since March of 2020. And some figures from the US that people are probably familiar with include like Elon Musk, who earned $150 billion across the pandemic. And that represented more than a 600% increase in his personal wealth. So that's like six times what he had when he started. Um, and Jeff Bezos, and close to a hundred billion, although that's obviously and in inverted commas because I wouldn't say that they earned any of that money. Because at the same time, eighty-six million Americans lost their jobs, and the International Labour Organization has estimated that workers internationally lost three point seven trillion dollars in income across the pandemic. And that's not even mentioning the more than 600,000 people who've died from the virus in America so far and the more than 4 million recorded deaths internationally. And then, as you mentioned before, you have these guys basically flaunting their extreme wealth with their ridiculous space race. It kind of, it really symbolizes the total obscenity of a system that is prepared to see millions of ordinary people die while the richest basically just get to play with their own personal rocket ships. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Our across Bring it back closer, and I guess to give an example of the um, inequality politically as well as economically, the treatment of people, the treatment of the ruling class and the rich compared to working class ordinary people has been this example we've had in Australia with the JobKeeper scheme. So this was mm. the scheme set up to supposedly protect the income of workers during the pandemic when certain businesses were forced to shut down. So the government was contributing money to businesses to pay workers that were furloughed or couldn't work at, through through the pandemic. Um that we've since found out included a clause that if businesses overclaimed, they would not 
be required to pay it back and also found out that um, 20% of the money went out to from the government to businesses that were seeing an increase in their profits and that totaled somewhere we're now led to believe up to around $20 billion of JobKeeper money that was supposed to go to workers that was actually just kept by the bosses of these companies in Australia. Mm. And we had um, Harvey Norman was one of the cases of this and it became well known because he got very upset about being called out about this. I don't know if you heard the um, interview he did on Raf Epstein on ABC mm-hmm. where Raf gently asked him why he didn't pay all of the money back because he paid a small amount back. Mm-hmm. And he just was like, I'm not answering this question, hung up the phone because <laughs> wow. he knew he was fucking wrong and, he, mm. and people hate the guy, rightly so. So, yeah, Shirley, what do you reckon about this um, this scandal as part of an example of the treatment, the different treatment of, of people around? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, first of all, it's just absolutely staggering that one in five JobKeeper dollars basically went to businesses that, actually profited off the pandemic like this is just theft on an enormous scale I think um and in terms of Harvey Norman specifically well yeah they massively profited from the pandemic um being in the business of appliances and furniture and stuff they made an absolute killing Mm. while everyone was stuck at home and their profits increased by 116 percent during the pandemic um to a total of $462 $462 million. And, you know, going back to the, the rich list that I mentioned at the start, Jerry Harvey's personal wealth is now at $2.9 billion, which is an increase of almost $600 million in a year. But Harvey Norman still received JobKeeper and pocketed $22 million. And like you said, it was only after public outrage that Jerry Harvey returned $6 million which is not even a third of the full amount, but he seemed to think that was enough to satisfy everyone. I mean, as to where that other $16 million is going to end up, like who can say? Maybe Jerry Harvey will stash it in an offshore bank account or buy himself a couple of properties. I don't know. What does a couple extra million dollars mean to a man who's worth nearly $3 billion already? Yeah, exactly. But I think that like ultimately it reflects a real problem with the whole conceit of the JobKeeper program. Like part of it is that clause that says that the government is not going to even attempt to recover money from businesses that claim it unfairly. But I think it's also about the fact that the government insisted that rather than sending money straight to workers who needed it, that they wanted bosses to be like the middlemen in this process. And when that's how the scheme is set up, like I think this kind of fraud was pretty much inevitable. And then, you know, that's not even going into the like differential treatment that these bosses and CEOs have received as compared to like robo-debt victims who have just been harassed, you know, basically to the point of suicide in some cases over um, over essentially nothing. Mm. Yep. And for people who don't know about the robo-debt thing that we're talking about, so it was a couple of years ago, was um, people who had been um, in receipt of Centrelink payments, so um, social welfare payments of various types, uh, were um, audited by a algorithm <laughs> that 
led to the sending out of all of these debt letters saying to people, you've been overpaid by, you know, anything from a few hundred bucks to several thousand dollars that you need to pay back to the government because mm. you, you've basically um, rorted the system, even if you didn't know that you'd done that and you have to pay it back and here's the deadline to pay it back. And it just meant thousands and thousands of people mm. panicked, didn't have the money and absolutely went into kind of spirals of yeah. anxiety. There were suicides over this and the government, later admitted that a whole bunch of the calculations were completely wrong, yep. so people didn't owe them any money. No apology has been issued. All of this damage that was done, you know, to people's mental health and all of that, no apologies for any of that. And they're still chasing up people who they say were correctly identified to pay back, you know, mm. 350 bucks or whatever it was. And yet, <laughs> Jerry Harvey can just fucking waltz off with his millions of dollars. Mm. So, yeah, that's what mm. we're talking about, that kind of comparison around how people are treated. And that, you know, like that scenario you just described, Ross, of Jerry Harvey just hanging up on on the ABC reporters, you know, like that's the arrogance of that. Yeah. Because you know, he knows, like you said before, he knows people hate him, but he also knows, like, I, I'm fucking Jerry Harvey I don't have to answer your questions. And he's right. Like he literally does not have to answer questions from the journalists because he is a fucking billionaire. Like these, yeah. the whole system is, it's his system. <laughs> you know, like this, the, 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 the contrast between, you know, some of the poorest sections of the Australian working class who might've spent some time on welfare in the past and are now being fucking hounded to the grave over it. And this arrogant billionaire who could just be like, fuck off on not answering your questions. And he can say that comfortable and confident in the knowledge that there will be no repercussions at all. Like that is the contrast. Mm, it's yeah. fucking scandalous. Um, so, Shirley, in the article you talk about inequality because I guess that's just, uh, the treatment of people is completely unequal. But um, one of the aspects from our side of the equation in terms of workers and ordinary people is that our income in the form of our wages has just been completely stagnant through this whole time and before the pandemic. So the rich are getting richer and we're not. <laughs> Can you talk about that side of things as well? Yeah. Well, another dynamic uh, in amongst all of this is that not only have the world's billionaires massively increased their wealth, but workers have seen their share of income stagnate. And in a lot of cases, it's actually fallen substantially. So in Australia from June 2020 to June 2021, real wages fell by 2.1% overall. So technically they rose by 1.7%, but that rise was way too small to offset the 3.8% increase in inflation. So that's where the 2.1% figure comes from. And it amounts to the biggest drop in wages since 2001. But yeah, like the um, you know twenty five percent increase in billionaires' fortune, fortunes, um, it's just an average across the board. And when you look at individual industries, you can see that some have been hit harder than others. And I think pretty disgracefully, it's been some of the most essential workers who have seen the biggest drop in overall wages. So that's workers in the health and transport and postal sectors who've seen wage growth of only 0.1% over the period. And again, like measured against inflation, that's essentially a cut of 
So I think like it goes to show that the government and to be honest, even the union celebrations of these key sections of the working class have been totally hollow. Like the crucial work that they performed during this crisis in basically keeping society afloat has actually been rewarded with the biggest drop in wages in 20 years. Yeah. And record profits. I mean, Woolworths, as you were saying, you went through the appliance uh, retailers who made record profits, but Woolworths, you know, who so many of us have, like it's, the supermarkets keep popping up as exposure sites, you know, because we have to go there and get our food, uh, partly because the supermarkets won't give us free delivery. They're still charging 10 bucks to deliver a carton of milk, you know, like this scandalous profiteering. Uh, yeah, Woolworths was one of the other ones that posted record profits this year. So mm. not only have these workers, uh, you know, been hollow, this hollow celebration you refer to, not only has that all been kind of bullshit, uh, they've had yeah, a real-term drop in wages and the work they have been doing has been giving, you know, the bosses of these supermarket companies the biggest fucking Christmas, you know, Christmas present they've ever had, record profits, and they boast about it in the financial papers. Yeah, and it goes back to what we started with here around we're all in this together, so that idea that health workers are heroes, all oh, nurses are heroes. Like how many times have you heard fucking Dan Andrews say, the heroes that work in the health system, the nurses, you're going to have to do some more heroic work now because we're about to mm. unleash the virus in the community fucking victoria and so thank you so much it's like mm, thank you is one thing a fucking pay rise would be nice um mm. for nurses and they know uh, you know a bunch of them who've been interviewed in in just the last few days have said okay i'm sick of being called a hero like can you please give us pandemic pay mm. and then people turn around and say oh well shouldn't you be you know you know what the job is shouldn't you just do your job and appreciate like being a hero and it's yeah it's just unbelievable so i have a big question which you obviously (laughs) might not be able to answer fully in this in this moment but i mean you would think the unions should be especially the health unions able at this point to say okay enough is enough, a pay rise for nurses and people who work in the healthcare system. Why have they been so shit in your opinion, Shirley? Yeah, well, I think that is a very big question. But I think you can see like from the beginning of the pandemic, the attitude that the unions have had um, towards working conditions and and pay and stuff during this crisis. Because right from the beginning, it seems like the unions have been in general, more concerned with having a seat at the table and with negotiating those cuts and pay freezes than with actually fighting the attacks to begin with. And it kind of goes right back to the start where we saw Sally McManus getting really friendly with the Liberal Party Industrial Relations Minister, Christian Porter. That obviously didn't age well. Um, He called her his BFF last March. Um, And this essentially class collaborationist strategy that was pursued by the peak union body was reflected down in lots of prominent unions, I think. So, for example, the NTU tried to impose pay cuts on its own members via the jobs protection framework. And I guess you guys probably know more about that than me anyway. I think you were both a part of that that fight back that, that had to be fought off through a rank-and-file rebellion on campuses across the country. And 
the United Workers Union and Australian Services Union collaborated with employers to reduce award conditions in their industries. And that's just really a few examples of this pretty disastrous approach. A whole bunch of unions have pursued a similar strategy. And I think that that strategy has been to accept that workers are going to have to pay the price of this disaster. And so they've decided to take on the role of negotiators, collaborating with bosses to decide where the cuts will happen and how many jobs will go and so on, instead of saying that actually it's unacceptable that workers are being made to suffer the consequences of what's essentially a crisis of capitalism's own making. And to actually fight back and say, no, we're not going to accept any attacks on conditions and on pay and on jobs and stuff. So I think they've really missed this opportunity where there has been a bit of a recognition among broader society that workers and essential workers in particular, so healthcare workers and supermarket workers and transport workers, that the work that they do is so vital to the running of society that you'd think that now is the perfect opportunity to launch a fight for these workers to get the pay and conditions and like basically the respect that they deserve. Hmm. But I think that the unions abandoned that fight before it even began and like basically said, yep, okay, these cuts are going to happen. Let's just make sure that we get to decide where and how they happen instead of saying, no, we're actually not going to accept any cuts at all. Like the rich can pay for this disaster that they've created. Mm. Yeah. And it's like the corollary, corollary, I can think of the word, like the, the associated kind of, um, you know, the, the same side of the different coin, whatever it is. The same thing happens in with the unions uh, not just refusing to, um, you know, wage a real struggle for to defend pay and conditions in the midst of the pandemic, but precisely because we are in the midst of the pandemic, you know, the responsibility of the unions, dot one, should have been how can we keep people safe? You know, that should have been like health and safety in the workplace is not some foreign thing to a union, right? It should have been like, you know, the first point on the agenda and union after union after union actually failed on that count as well. You know, over the course of all of the lockdowns in Victoria and New South Wales, uh, most of the unions have not fought actually to have their industry closed and their workers paid to stay home, but the opposite. They've tried to find ways to keep business running. That means they've tried to keep ways to keep the profits flowing. So those rich fuckers we were just talking about can get richer. You know, if the unions had said at the outset, we don't care about your profits, we care about the health and safety of our, you know, our, our, our members and our families and our communities, and we care about crushing the virus quickly, they would afford a big campaign to say, you fuckers are going to pay your taxes and the government is going to pay everyone and we're going to stay home for a month, we're going to beat this virus. You know what I mean? They never mm. said that. Yeah. And two years later now, we're dealing with that political, with the consequences of that political failing as well. Yeah. If they, you know, it's it's... It doesn't seem like a difficult argument to say that the 250 richest people in Australia don't need an extra, not even just what they already have, but an extra $93 billion this year or last year. Like, let's use that to pay people to stay home. Let's mm. use that to pay nurses, like, triple the amount that they currently get paid. Because without them, we're fucked. That's the whole point, essential workers. Mm. And those workers have power because they're essential, but they're not being organised to exert that power, to demonstrate that power, to use it to improve anything about their experience. So another big question, just so as we wrap up here, like to turn this around as a socialist, Shirley, what kind of things at least would point us in the right direction? Mm. Well, yeah, 
In terms of the unions, I mean, what we really need is a union movement that's based around actually fighting and not facilitating these attacks from the government and from the bosses. And I think that that would require more than rubbing shoulders with Liberal Party politicians and then like posting the occasional meme, which is all the ACTU seems to be up to these days. Like that would require actually mobilising the rank and file to defend their conditions and also to fight for more. And I think like throughout the pandemic, there have been small cases of this, like the NTU fight back that I mentioned before and sort of smaller incidents of, of workers in sectors like teaching and distribution, fighting for better conditions and more health and safety provisions and things like that. But on the whole, like the position of the unions has been pretty crap throughout the pandemic. Um, and it's going to take a lot, I think, to get us to the point where workers across all industries are confident and militant and able to take up the fight for their own conditions. But like, unless we get to that position, I think the future is pretty grim for workers in Australia because it's not like the union bureaucracies or the Labor Party are all that interested in mobilising their members to actually fight back. I think the prospects of a genuinely militant union movement is pretty frightening to them, honestly. But unless we can rebuild that fighting capacity and rebuild it from below, importantly, I think we can expect a continuation or potentially an acceleration of the trend towards deepening inequality um, of the rich getting richer and workers' incomes slipping further and further behind. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely need some something to bloody radically shift um, ASAP. If we were, if you, if if people who are listening to this are kind of new to socialist politics or um, so what socialist arguments are about the state of the world and how to change it, what would you sum up from this whole discussion around the rich profiting in the pandemic? I mean, it's, I guess it's. Um, hopefully fairly straightforward to people that that is the kind of fucked up uh, system that we live in that breeds this situation. But what would be some of your final observations here, Shirley? Mm. Well, I don't know. I feel a bit ranty about this topic as well, to be honest. I think, well, I think there's, there's probably like two main things that I would draw from this. And first, that would be that like, Everything we've talked about so far, I think, sums up some of the key things that are wrong with capitalism. So just the fact that the capitalist class can oversee a pandemic which has resulted in more than 4 million deaths worldwide and hundreds of millions of cases, many with devastating long-term health impacts that we're kind of still finding out the extent of, basically, that this is a crisis that they effectively created through deforestation and massive industrial farming that we know causes the proliferation of, of new and dangerous viruses. And that on top of that, they can at every step make it worse, like by refusing to waive intellectual property laws that have made it much harder to develop and distribute vaccines and by campaigning against life-saving lockdowns for the sake of keeping businesses open and profits flowing which tons of uh, businesses have done in Australia from the very beginning. And that, like, over decades they've cut funding to healthcare and vital services that means 
that it's poor and working class people who are the most vulnerable to contracting this virus and then to suffering its long-term effects. And I guess, lastly, that after all of this, they still profit from this disaster and not just profit a normal amount, but make an exceptionally huge amount of money out of mass death and like sheer human misery. It's just so revolting that that's how the world operates. And like, it really says that we need to fight for a radically different kind of society because it's literally life and death. Like, I think the pandemic has demonstrated that. Um, but I guess, yeah, that, that leads me to my second thing that I would, that I would take from this, which is that that kind of society, one that is capable of meeting the needs of all people, like that kind of society is totally possible because like we live in a world of total abundance, like literally like never before in human history. And the fact that this much wealth can be produced in a single year through the labor of billions of people, I think is just like astonishing. And right now, all of the work of ordinary people, all of our labor and our capacity to create and to imagine and to help people, like all of that goes towards enriching these disgusting parasites that sit in their mansions and in their skyscrapers and send people into workplaces and factories where they could catch this virus and potentially die. And they sit there and watch their billions double while this happens. Like that just makes me think of like the kind of world that we could create if instead of making capitalists rich, our work went towards providing everyone with the things that they need to like have a fulfilling life and then went towards solving the big questions that confront humanity, like the climate crisis and future pandemics because like we know there's going to be more. Like this is a kind of society, a socialist society, that I think the pandemic proves that we need more urgently than ever because the rich are happy to literally let us die in our millions for the sake of their profits. And they see no problem with living in a world of extreme inequality and misery and depression. And in fact, like what all this has shown is that they benefit from it. Like mm. they've, they've massively increased their wealth in a year that's been like one of the toughest for ordinary people across the world, you know, and, and we don't benefit from this. And actually we have everything to gain from just tearing it all to the ground. So, I mean, yeah, this kind of, this situation, I think, just really reaffirms everything that, that makes me a socialist, I think, and, and just, like, lights the fire as to, like, why we, we have to absolutely destroy this system before it, you know, destroys us, I think. Well said. Fuck this shit. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, thanks, Shirley, for coming on and... Um just laying it all out there, I think, in a way that hopefully convinces people to at least investigate socialist politics. Have a listen to some of our earlier episodes. We have had in the past a few beginner's guides to things, so a further explanation of what when we talk about capitalism, what do we mean. We have a beginner's guide to revolution, which might make a nice follow-on from this episode if you haven't listened to that one already, mm -hmm. because if you want to change the world, we would 
argue that you need to have a revolutionary perspective about that. You can't just incrementally chip away at it. You've got to smash the system is what we're saying. So if you want to learn about that, that's a good episode. And uh, we will continue to have these kind of discussions on Red Flag Radio. So thanks, Shirley. Um, Thanks, Liam. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, this is Red Flag Radio. My name is Ros Ward. We have a world to win. (laughs) 